Joan Gantz Cooney, who created Sesame Street, once said to me, she was talking to someone else who was talking about the elements of luck in our careers that led us to where we are today. And she said, well, I don't know. I don't think it's just luck. She said, the difference between those who are really successful and those who aren't is those who know when to seize luck. That's Sherry Weston, president of Social Impact and Philanthropy for Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit behind Sesame Street. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. And this is FOMO Sapiens, where leaders in business and beyond share how they choose what they actually want and find the courage to miss out on the rest. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming options. But before we get to the interview, I want to welcome you to season four of FOMO Sapiens. Now, since we last spoke, a lot has happened. The world changed overnight with the onset of the global coronavirus pandemic, and it's wrought changes upon financial markets, the way we work, the way we live. Basically, everything has changed very quickly. And I'm actually taping this intro a few weeks before air date. So by the time you listen to this, I can't even predict what's going to be going on. But I can tell you something. I have found this whole experience to be pretty overwhelming, and I know most of you have too. It seems like everybody just is trying to figure out what to do with their lives. And so as a result, we need to find ways to keep going while also making sure to take care of ourselves and our communities. Since this is top of mind for so many of us, I'm going to spend some time at the end of the show talking about FOMO and coronavirus, specifically how they are linked and how you can fight FOMO in this time when many of us are locked down at home. So stick around for the FOMO of the show. We'll be discussing that. I also want to start this season by letting you know about my new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice, that's coming out on May 5th, 2020. In fact, you can actually already pre-order both the paperback and the Kindle versions on Amazon. And I'm going to be honest with you, launching a book in the middle of this crisis has been a very mixed blessing. On the one hand, it's hard to talk about anything but corona right now, and frankly, most people aren't even focused on other topics. But at the same time... I have found it helpful to focus a lot of my energy on trying to get the word out about the book, and I also believe that this book could actually really make a difference at a time when decision-making is so critical. I've been struggling with my own feelings of FOMO and FOBO for weeks now as the global environment has gotten so complex. I put these strategies and the hacks that are in the book to the test, and I'm happy to say that they've actually helped me quite a bit even though, of course, uh, indecision has become a part of all of our lives in a way that it wasn't a couple months ago. You'll be hearing more about the book, what it's got in it, and the process of actually writing the book throughout this season. Um, But in the meantime, I'd be so grateful if you consider pre-ordering the book and supporting the launch. I know it's a crazy time, but your support would mean so much to me. Now, let's get on with the show. So my guest today is Sherry Weston, and she is a force of nature. 
She runs Sesame Workshop's social impact and philanthropy efforts across the globe, from Latin America and Africa to the Middle East and Asia. She also led Sesame's successful bid in partnership with the IRC for the MacArthur Foundation's 100 and Change Grant. That's a $100 million grant that has funded a humanitarian response to bring Sesame's educational and emotional resources to the Syrian response region. This was followed by another $100 million grant from the Lego Foundation to expand this work to Bangladesh, where Sesame works with Rohingya refugees. Today, we're going to talk to Sherry about that work, but we're going to actually start somewhere else. I just wanted to hear her story. So she's a graduate of the University of Virginia, and she has taken a really interesting path. She worked in the White House as assistant to the president uh, under George Herbert Walker Bush. Then she moved on to senior roles at ABC and U.S. News and World Report. Now she works for Big Bird. So not many people go from working for the president of the United States to working for Big Bird. And I wonder who's actually harder to work for, who's more demanding. But in doing so, she's gone from the public sector to the private sector and now to the nonprofit sector. So to start out our interview, I wanted to ask Sherry the question that first came to my mind when I read her bio. And that was, how has she worked for so many seemingly different yet really interesting places? Well, first of all, I'm old, right? So I've had a lot of years. But, um, you know, and there were a f- several steps in between those, but those clearly were major ones. Um, look, it was always the opportunity. And, of course, there's timing and circumstances in your life that make something the right thing to do at the time. Um, when you say, how do you get to Sesame Street? That was not a straight path. Little did I know years ago that this is where I would end up. But, you know, I came to Sesame when I had become a mother and my daughter was three years old and I can't think of a better place to end up than a place that's also focused on children and education. Was that a big, a big part of it, I guess, when yeah. you, you saw that opportunity? You said, like, I have a small child now. I understand the impact. No, it was, it was a huge part of it because I had started to focus more on children's media even when I was at ABC. And I had adopted my daughter. I have two children, one biological, one adopted. And my first child was adopted. And, um, you know, I... I have always cared a lot about children, but I think once I became a parent, the thought of my day job and my priority of trying to be a great mom, you know, or at least attempting, um, it was a wonderful thought to if I could connect those two. Yeah. And as you think about the connective tissue between these worlds that you lived in, part of it is purpose. There are some storytelling elements as well, but stepping back at like 10,000 feet, when you looked at each of these opportunities, was there something that, that you can sort of extrapolate from all three a general sort of theme that that brings them all together well you know if you if if you really get me to reflect I think in my earlier years even the White House and ABC you know I was the youngest person to be confirmed by the Senate I think there were a lot of jobs I did because I just wanted to prove myself and I kept thinking if I do this I'll be credible Sesame was less that. You know, Sesame Workshop was the first job where I really felt like it wasn't just, oh, how can I refuse? This opportunity came about and I just have to do it to prove myself. It was more selective in that this is where I would like to work. And as you face these big decisions, did you sit down and make a list of pro and cons? Did you talk to mentors? Like, I like to think about decision making as fact finding that allows your intuition to do the work that it's supposed to do, right? So it's like, can I succeed at this? Or what's the risk here? Or what's the unknown I don't have? And so then, you know, for me anyway, I try to go through a process of discovery. But then at some point, you know, you can talk to as many people as possible. You can try to do as much work and due diligence as you can to uncover what you don't know. But at some point, there is 
just an intuition piece. So for you, as you thought about, you know, these opportunities, was was this a lot of homework? Was it was it a lot of intuition? Was it just looking at saying, you know what, what the heck? Life's too short. This looks interesting. I'm going to go for it. You know, I think sometimes you're making a decision and you're trying to talk the people in your into it giving you the advice you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I certainly always talked to other people and got input, but for the most part, I think my it was also a, a strong sort of gut of this is the right move and, and this is why. And I also think in, in life, there are always times where, oh my gosh, if I went here, this would be great. And if I went there, that also offers huge opportunities. Which do I do? And it isn't that one is the right decision. It's that you have to make a decision and make it right. You know, there will always be trade-offs. I imagine as you built your career, you were always meeting new people and, and getting to know them and, and telling them who you were. And so opportunities would come up, I would imagine, over time that you'd be offered all kinds of different things. Some things that were way out of left field, some things that were much closer to what you were doing at the time. And I always wonder for when you're in those situations, and I think it's something we all struggle with, like, when you do have an opportunity, how do you know, okay, this isn't FOMO, this isn't something I should actually do? When the world opens doors for you, which ones do you run through and which ones do you say, well, it's really interesting, but you know, right now I got to focus over here? Well, I don't know. I, I, I think you're right that I've been very fortunate in that I've met many different people and I've worked in many different circles, which sort of broadens your horizons. And that that is absolutely what led to various opportunities. Um, Joan Gantz Cooney, who created Sesame Street, once said to me, she was talking to someone else who was talking about the elements of luck in our careers that led us to where we are today. And she said, well, I don't know. I don't think it's just luck. She said, the difference between those who are really successful and those who aren't is those who know when to seize luck. And, and I thought that was so interesting because you're right. There are opportunities that come that you, you know, I, I was certainly never looking for the next thing. You know, people talk about networking and how important networking is, and I guess it is. I somehow don't really love the, the term. But, but being open to new ideas and new people and new thoughts, that is so important in terms of, of you know, finding your path. And I always tell younger people when they're setting out, you know, take any job, do anything, because if you learn you hate it, that was a huge, helpful um, data point to know that actually I don't want to be in that field or I don't really like doing that. So it's so helpful to learn what you do like and what you don't and gravitate towards, you know, that path. Yeah, it's interesting. When I think about about this, this quandary, I've gotten better at saying no as I've gotten to know myself better, but there's this piece of wisdom that I got, and it's funny, it's kind of an unexpected place. It's the show The Good Wife, and there was, I used to watch this show, I think a lot of people did, and it's a, it's a really interesting show about a kind of a high achiever and a bunch of high achievers, and one of the characters, Diane Lockhart, says, uh, says to one of the other characters, Alicia, she says, when life opens a door for you, you run through it, and I think when you know how to say no to things, you build up the muscles to actually better understand when something great comes along, run. Well, listen, I, I I will say there certainly were things when I was in my 20s or 30s that were FOMO. Like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to miss that, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, or I want to, you know, oh, it'll be so exciting to be there. Or at my age, it's, it is less about missing out on an event. It's more about can you be everywhere you think you should be in order to 
achieve and do the work you're trying to do and knowing that you absolutely can't. And therefore, if you don't really prioritize and sort of pace yourself, it's not going to be worth it in the long run. Yeah. And so you've had to learn to say no. So tell me about that. How do you, how do you say no to things as you, as the, as the stakes get higher and you get better and better offers? Well, listen, I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I still try to do too much, but I, um, I'm much more selective. You know, I do think as you get older, you don't care about big events like you maybe once did. But in terms of more personal things, I just am more selective about being with friends. I don't want to spend time with people that, you know, just want to uh, get to know you. I, I want to spend time with people I know that I care, you know, a lot about. Yeah, I think you get to a point in life where you're like, okay, I know a lot of people now. I know enough people. I don't get to spend time with the people I actually want right, to right, see. Right, and so right. therefore, it's not that I don't want to meet new people. No, no, but exactly. But I it's just, just there's focus. a limited amount of time you have. Yeah. So, um, Tudo bem, meus queridos fomos sapiens. Now, that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. I want to I want to talk a little bit about jumping out of your comfort zone. Tell me a story about as for example when you first joined Sesame when you when you you had to come out of your comfort zone. Maybe you you were asking somebody to do something like a partner with you on something or you were were dealing with somebody and trying to convince them to support your mission and you felt kind of unsure of where to oh, go. Well, how did I, you, I, mean, I mean, listen, I'll tell you, when, when we when we competed for the MacArthur 100 and Change Award, which was the first ever grant of $100 million to an organization addressing a pressing issue of our time, and there were 1,904 applicants. Um, it was a 18-month process, and in the end, the final competition was the four finalists would present in front of a room a ballroom full of people, 300 people, and it would be exactly 30 minutes. It's I, In my mind, it was a cross between um, a TED Talk and Shark Tank because wow. at the end of Makes that, w- only one would be standing. Mm-hmm. And I did that with the head of our partner organization, the IRC, David Miliband. And I will say that was absolutely outside my comfort zone because if you screw up, this there's $100 million on the line. Um, oh, my gosh, that was you know, my idea of hell. When you, when you stepped on that stage and we're going to talk about MacArthur in detail, because this is really interesting work. When you stepped on that stage, I mean, I imagine (laughs) you took a deep breath. You probably practiced a lot, but what got you from walking out onto that stage to, you know, delivering the message and feeling good that you, that you left it all in the field, you know, believing in the work Mm -hmm. and, and, and in, you know, maybe a prayer or two, but also I, I, try 
really hard to um, practice the discipline of gratitude. Yes. My children hate when I say that. But um, because I do think even when something is daunting or or um, challenging to stop and think, oh, my God, I should be so grateful for this opportunity. That's incredible. And this opens the door to uh, the next sort of area that I want to talk about, which is, you know, we think about, many of us think about Sesame Street as our beloved characters. Mm -hmm. I particularly am favorable to Grover, but, you know. Grover's my favorite too, but don't tell. (laughs) Okay, I won't. But it's a show, it's a a media company that we have grown up with all over the world. And and it's, there are local versions all over the world for listeners. We have a global listenership. People have seen it in their own languages in many parts of the world. But it's more, you have really chosen an area to focus on, an important area that you mentioned earlier this this um, MacArthur grant, the 100 and Change grant, and that is the response to the refugee crisis, and that started in Syria. And so in 2017, Sesame Street uh, it, it partnered with the International Rescue Committee, or the IRC, to apply for this grant. It won $100 million to bring critical services to children in the Syria response region. And this goes down as the largest early childhood intervention in the history of humanitarian response. So this is not a small undertaking. And so I just want to start as we talk about decision making and you know overcoming in uncertainty especially when it's such a daunting commitment. This is an organization where as I mentioned you could do a million different things and you're doing a lot of things but why did this particular opportunity stand out for you? How did it come to the forefront? Well, I think the best way to answer that is to back up first. Okay. Because to your point, you know, Sesame Street has been around for 50 years. We celebrated our 50th anniversary last year. So over those 50 years, we continue to look at what are the issues of the day? What what are the challenges facing young children where Sesame can play a role to give them the tools to overcome those challenges completely consistent with our DNA to put them on the path to thrive. And so you can imagine over 50 years, there have been different issues that have come up over those years. Um, And five years ago, the largest number of people displaced since World War II, half of whom were children, we looked at that and thought, how can we not try to play a role? Um, We did not think of ourselves as a humanitarian organization. We are a educational media organization. Um, and we've always been a nonprofit. People don't always realize that. You know, Sesame's always been a nonprofit created with grants from Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation, which is why the MacArthur was so important. We have to raise the funds to do the work. But we felt like if we could partner with a humanitarian organization, if we could partner with someone who had the services on the ground and knew the needs of refugees as much as we know the needs of young children, that we could make a difference. That's what led to our partnership with the IRC. And then when we heard about MacArthur, we we applied and asked the IRC to join us, um, never dreaming we would win the grant. Now, we are enormously grateful, but it is over five years and two organizations, so it's not as huge as it may sound, but it, but it allowed us to call attention to this critical need that the youngest refugees are those who receive the least. And yet we know through every bit of research and science that those first five years of life are the most important in terms of a child's trajectory, their healthy brain development. And we also know when they experience trauma that it completely derails that healthy development. So to partner with an organization where we could create local Arabic 
content with these proven, engaging Muppets and not only reach them through mass media, but also create storybooks, activities, lesson plans, content that we could arm the IRC with, train them and have them reach the most vulnerable through home visits, learning centers, health clinics, that it would be a powerful model. And I watch clips of this show that you created, Ahlan Simpson. Yes, Ahlan Simpson, which means Welcome Sesame. It's an amazing, and you can see these, by the way, if you go, there was a, there was a, a piece that was done in 60 Minutes uh, recently about this. And what I love about it is, first of all, it's joyful and Right. But it's real and it talks about there's one child who's, you know, who had to leave their home. And so it deals with kids where they are. But the other thing that I thought was really, it really stood out is it's innovative. You can, this show feels fresh and this whole project is innovative. And I think sometimes we think about nonprofits and we say, oh, you know, they're state or they're too large or whatever. This is innovation that's happening. And when we have innovation, obviously, we have to convince people to come along because it's changing the way we do things. And sometimes people maybe aren't ready to get involved. So I'm curious, as you built consensus within Sesame Workshop to go after this really big opportunity, what were the areas of concern? What were the pushbacks? And how did you get past those to make this happen? Well, you know, look, I think that it was a departure in the sense that, as I said, we had not done humanitarian work per se. And by that, I mean reaching children in crisis settings. You know, Sesame Street was very innovative. I mean, who in 1969, to prove you could use television to teach, was hugely innovative. And so today it's about the same goal to reach those children who need us most and in more innovative ways. It's not just television anymore. It's it's and it's high tech and low tech. I mean I was just in Bangladesh in the Rohingya camps and there's not electricity. So we have battery operated Pico projectors to show videos in these play labs we call them. It's just being more innovative in how we continue to reach the children who need us most. So imagine you, know, you have this this experience of moving from government into into for profit into the not for profit world, and you're sitting down with a young person who says, "What's your advice about the trade offs I'm going to have to make? What advice would you give that person about choosing between these these potential very different lanes as they build their life?" You know. I, looking back, realized that I have so much more experience to draw upon because I've experienced for-profit and not-for-profit and media and government. I will say that when you're younger and have less responsibility or obligation, you don't have children in grade school or, you know, I think people should be much more adventurous because there will be times later in life where you simply can't take an opportunity that, that that's not a time you could leave or it's not a time you could move your family. So, um, you know, I do think that you want to take those risks and and adventures when you have the freedom to do so. Yeah, and you can always do something on the side. I mean, we obviously I talk about this a lot in this concept of going all in some of the time. It may be that you have a job that is not has nothing to do with Sesame or, or another organization that maybe you feel passion for, but you can get involved on the board or... Oh, listen, I, 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 when I look back, I have always involved, been involved with children. Yeah. No matter what my career was, I was always either volunteering or really involved in an organization with children. It's just something I've always loved. So I feel very fortunate that today it's my day job. Sherry, this is a show about 
choosing what you actually want to do and then finding the courage to miss out on the rest. What is your advice to somebody who wants to do exactly that? I think that if you're, if you know what you want to do, just do everything you can um, toward that end, but pace yourself. I often say in my work, every day is triage. It's not what I thought I was going to be doing. It's triage. But I do think that in this digital world, we get so distracted by everything coming in at the same level and the same pace that if you know that's what you want to do, what are the three most important things to do to get there? And and then analyze what you're spending the majority of your time on as to which ones are truly moving that needle. And I've read you do that, that you do sit down and sort of look at your three priorities. Oh, I, oh, I do. I do. Yeah. But I mean, I'll, I laugh because, you know, on my list of notes of most important things to do. Someone made fun of me once because I had on the same list, one was call Admiral Mullen, who at the time was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Uh because he was a huge um, part of our military family initiative. And the second was find um, Mr. Softy Truck, because (laughs) I was desperate to find an ice cream truck for my son's like seventh birthday and they looked at this you know note of Admiral Mullen and Mr. Frosty and laughed and I said yeah and believe me number two is more important than number one (laughs) well it would be amazing (laughs) if you could combine them together and I don't know how you do that invite Admiral Mullen to the seven-year-old birthday yeah party I bet he, I mean, I've, I've actually had the pleasure of meeting him. I He's bet a he'd lovely be, man, I'm sure. He'd be he would, great yeah. at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> finally, I just want to tell everybody that Sesame Workshop, Sesame Street, has the best social media in the world ever, okay? So if you want to brighten your day, just follow. the Yes, the, the, Sesame it, Street or Sesame Workshop on Twitter or on Facebook. All right, Sherry Weston from Sesame Workshop, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. FOMO. And now it's time for the faux moment of the show. And today I want to talk about the unfolding coronavirus crisis. As I have observed the impact of COVID-19 on our society, I've seen FOMO's role in several areas. First, it's provoking a wave of panic buying. And this connection has been widely reported in the global press with things like toilet paper being hoarded. And it started in Asia, actually in Hong Kong, where people were worried that they wouldn't be able to get toilet paper. It wouldn't be exported from China. So they started buying out of concern that it would be hard to find. This moved on to other places like Australia. And in fact, there is a company called Who Gives a Crap, which is an e-commerce company which makes eco-friendly toilet paper. And they reported that their sales grew by 800% overnight. And they basically ran out of stock. Here's the irony. They actually make the toilet paper in China. So if you were really worried about the supply chain and the fact that it wouldn't get out of China, they were not the right producer for you. And actually, they didn't even have any issues with their supply chain. And then it moved on to the United States and Europe, and we saw people going out and buying toilet paper in huge quantities. And I have to admit, I actually did that too. So why was there this panic buying? Well, number one, there is this perception out there that maybe you'd have trouble getting toilet paper because of what you read in the news and on social media. And so this is a way for us to exert control and feel like somehow we're doing something in the face of a lot of uncertainty. So panic buying is bad, but it's really bad when it comes to things like Purell and masks that people need, professionals need at hospitals and other settings. And if they can't get them and you've got a bunch in your closet at home, it's not good for society. It's a misallocation of resources and it's just not good citizenship. 
Now, beyond panic buying, you also see FOMO in the fact that some people just aren't willing to stay home. We've been talking about social distancing for a couple of weeks here in our society. And in order to socially distance yourself from people, you can't be out in public in big groups. And so when you have FOMO, that's especially hard for you. And there's all kinds of different ways to combat that from doing uh, conference calls with your friends to calling people up on the phone. But obviously, if you have a lot of FOMO, it doesn't feel good. And finally, the third way that FOMO is playing out in coronavirus is the fact that lots of people are addicted to news. And when you have FOMO and you check Twitter all day or other social media or your favorite network of choice all day and immerse yourself in information, you may be informed, but obviously not good for your state of mental health. That said, despite the negative effects of FOMO on our mindset our psyche during this time of difficult challenges. I also think that there's an opportunity to realize that although there might not yet be a cure for coronavirus, in a sense, there may be a new cure for FOMO, and that is coronavirus, because now we are forced to withdraw and stay home and think about doing the things that maybe we always wanted to do, but never did before. And that may be reading a bunch of the books you've piled up, watching some TV shows, spending quality time with family, learning a new hobby, all of those sides of things. And so it's actually an opportunity to make lemonade out of lemons. This is not going to be easy and lots of people are going to suffer. However, if you're healthy and stuck at home and you're wondering how to spend your days, try to think of something good that you can do with your time. And I'd keep this in mind as well. When something bad happens, oftentimes we think about the stress that it creates and the fact that there's oftentimes post-traumatic stress. But I read a couple books over the last few months that have made me think that actually Sometimes when we face stress, we can come out better on the other side. There's a great book called Flourish by Martin Seligman. There's a great book called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. And both of them talk about something called post-traumatic growth, which is when you face a challenge and come out on the other side better than where you came from. So check out those books. Maybe you can add them to your list while you're staying at home. So the next months are not going to be easy, but I can offer you my support and tell you one thing. We're going to get through this together, FOMO Sapiens. So Definitely check out the books I mentioned and take care of yourselves and let me know how you're dealing with social isolation. You can tweet me at PJ McGinnis or send me an email at letsconnect@patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO. If you have an idea for the phone moment of the show or you have a question, reach out to me at letsconnect@patrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. Also, you can order my new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision-Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice at Amazon or at my website, patrickmcginnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com.